Hello and welcome back to Immigrantly. I am your host Sadia Khan. Today we have a very interesting episode which is all about one of our favorite topics in the world, food. I'm sure all of our wonderful listeners will agree when I say that being able to try and experience all sorts of cultural cuisine is one of the most exciting parts of learning about the heritages of people around you. Joining us today is the lovely Michelle Lee. She's a broadcaster, founder of the Very Asian Foundation and the author of the book, A Very Asian Guide to Korean Food. Now, in January of 2022, Michelle was wrapping up a segment on holiday food when she briefly mentioned a Korean New Year's tradition, saying, and I quote, I ate dumpling soup. That's what a lot of Korean people do, unquote. This casual, offhand comment, barely two sentences, was enough to anger a listener to leave a disgruntled voicemail complaining about the statement. Take a listen. Hi, um, this evening your Asian anchor uh, mentioned something about being Asian and Asian people eat dumplings on New Year's Day and uh, kind of take offense to that because what if one of your white anchors said, well, uh, white people eat this on uh, New Year's Day? Um, I don't think it was appropriate that she said that. And she was being very Asian and I don't know. Uh, she can keep her Korean um, to herself. All right. Sorry. Uh, it was annoying. because. If a white person would say that, it, they would get fired. <laughs> so say something about what white people eat. So, all right, thank you. Being very Asian? Seriously? What the actual frick? Isn't that bizarre? Anyways, thankfully, some good came out of the scholar's bigoted nonsense. After the clip went viral on social media, the very Asian movement began. Michelle said on her Instagram, and I quote, we should all be allowed to bring our full humanity to the table. And this is what happens when you are perceived as perpetually foreign, unquote. The very Asian movement initially started as a hashtag in which other members of the Asian diaspora shared solidarity with Michelle and united in a means of sharing Asian pride, which was extremely poignant as it was recently preceded by the Stop Asian Hate movement following attacks in America on members of the API diaspora last year. Michelle's book is another response to the initial bigotry that she faced. The book is set to be published in October this year. It's called A Very Asian Guide to Korean Food. It's a children's book detailing many traditional and modern Korean staples with pronunciation guides for each, which is incredible. In the book, you can also find descriptions of the origins and customary means of preparation of different dishes, which I love, brought to life with colorful illustrations. And to be honest, I think this book is for everyone. It transcends different demographics, age groups, generations. And I am so excited to now welcome Michelle to our podcast. 
Thank you so much for being on Immigrant Team, Michelle. I am so excited. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. So we played the viewers' voicemail in our intro, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because I'm sure it's been talked about, deliberated on, but I was just thinking how nasty and vile does a person have to be in order to pick up the phone and leave such a rude message. I was like, what the actual fuck? What, <laughs> what was she thinking, right? That's what I was thinking too. What the actual fuck? Yeah, but something really good came out of it. A very Asian movement. Now you have a book which is touted as a children's book. But to be honest, I think it's for everybody. Wow, really? I really honestly do because I'm a very visual person and I really enjoyed reading through it. And you did a phenomenal job with not just pictures, which obviously was illustrated by Suno, Rebecca Choi, a shout out to them. Yeah. But even the way you've described food, pronunciation, when it should be eaten, how it should be eaten, it was just so good. It's a guide too. So if somebody is interested in Korean food, it's a phenomenal book. So congratulations. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much. I have to give a lot of credit to the whole team, including someone who's not ever going to get credit on the book, but my sister, my biological sister, Hyunjung. She was really incredible. I said, well, you look at this. What do you think of these items? And what do you think of it? And she would come back with some really great personal stories. Like, oh, I remember eating this as a kid and this is what you do in Korea. So I owe her big time because she was so helpful. And when you were talking about it, saying it was for everyone, I kind of got a little emotion in the back of my throat because I was thinking as an adoptee, technically when I'm categorized, I'm categorized as an immigrant because I was born in Korea, came here, adopted. So I'm now an adoptee, a naturalized citizen, all these things. But like growing up as an adoptee, you feel this double shame for being Asian, you feel different, you know, because you're usually in a white family where people might not look like you. And then when you get made fun of, you don't have anyone or any reference to back it up. So you can't even like defend your Koreanness because you don't know anything about Korean culture, or at least not naturally. So I was thinking like, in so many ways, I feel like I have learned so much about Korean food through learning myself or like asking my sister. And so I'm hoping that people would look at it too as, oh my gosh, I'm learning something about Korean food, not just for my kids, but maybe for myself. You know, I love that. And I wonder what kind of relationship do you have with your sister? My sister and I are really close, even though we probably don't talk nearly as much as we need to. But when I grew up in Missouri, I grew up as an only child. And it's not for lack of trying. My parents, Charles and Sharon, did want to adopt other kids, but they had a scary incident with a child in foster care. At one point, they just said, our family's complete. So I grew up as an only child. And then when I was 18, I discovered my birth family they're still intact. So my birth parents are married. And then I have two older sisters and one younger sister. And my second oldest sister actually lives in Dallas now. So I helped her come to the States. I introduced her to her husband in a weird way because I put her on a dating app. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Which dating app? Bumble. And so she married this wonderful guy in Seattle, but he is from Minnesota, hmm. which I think is really hilarious just because we lived in Wisconsin for a while. I love Minnesota and that's Midwest. And now they live in Dallas together and they're so perfect for each other. They're a really great team, just a really great couple. But yeah, so my second oldest sister lives in Dallas and then 
then over the summer, my youngest sister came to visit my second oldest sister and then together and my niece and nephew came to St. Louis for a week. So it was really cool. Michelle, if you don't mind my asking, why did your parents give you up for adoption? Oh, gosh, it's a complex, complicated question. You piecemeal a lot of things together. You know, I've been told certain things, but basically I think what ended up happening was my birth parents were married and my two oldest sisters are only one year apart, like exactly 12 months apart. So then when I came along, when my birth mother was pregnant with me, I think she was like, what am I going to do with three kids under three, <laughs> you know? And my dad at the time was working on a ship overseas. So it was the 70s. The economy was not great in Korea. And when she went to the free clinic to give birth to me, no one came and visited her. You know, she was just really overwhelmed. And I think having been in that situation only once, you know, having a baby one time, you're probably dealing with a lot of postpartum. You're probably stressed and depressed and thinking like, what the hell am I doing with my life right now? You know, and how am I going to really do this? I know that she relinquished me in the hospital without naming me and just doing it right there and then going home. And then she told my father that I had died at birth. So when he returned in the comfort of each other, she got pregnant almost right away because my youngest sister is like 15 months younger than me. Oh, wow. So <laughs> if you can imagine, and then he was home. So that's what I've been able to piece together. They've been pretty open about it, but sometimes the stories have changed a little bit over 20 years. I think if I had been a son, she would have kept me just because firstborn sons are the ones who are responsible for taking care of the parents by way of bringing more honor to the family. but. I was the third girl and my mom was like, no, I can't do it. So yeah, I moved to Missouri when I was six months old and grew up super rural in the middle of nowhere and just was kind of a, in some ways, a fish out of water, but also really enjoyed the majority of my childhood. You know, your story is so incredible and I am so impressed with the way you're narrating it, the humor and the ease. And I'm pretty sure it's not easy and it's not comfortable. But fast forward to today, you <laughs> have this very Asian movement. It went viral. And as I said, something really good came out of that wild, ugly message. Michelle, in your opinion, how important is representation? In fact, let me take a step back. What does true representation really mean to you? Because it's used quite a bit in American vernacular, but honestly, I don't think anybody really knows what it means and what it <laughs> should mean. So what does it mean to you? And do you think through a very Asian movement, you've achieved part of it or achieved it wholly? Well, I don't think we've achieved it wholly, but we had this incredible global movement where you're seeing the hashtag show up all around the world. Her post took on a life of its own, shared more than 54,000 times by celebrities and total strangers, spawning other supportive hashtags like very black and very Jewish. But then also we could see where people were buying t-shirts. We did a fundraiser, you know, and made very Asian t-shirts. And we sold them in Holland and Germany and Australia and China and Korea, you know, so we saw this amazing movement around the world and people were writing saying, thank you for representing or thank you for being an adoptee because we never see adoptees being a voice for Asian conversations. Why do you think that is the case? I think because 
we are not in the majority of the diaspora. I think that there's so much conversation about at least in East Asian cultures, especially, you know, about tiger moms or about not being able to live out your dreams because your parents want you to be doctors or lawyers <laughs> or, you know, or the immigrant story. I mean, we are the immigrants in the sense that we have been put through an immigration system, an international foster care system. Right. But what the adoption community has done, unbeknownst to the adoptees, has glamorized adoption in such that having a foster mom is like a really cool thing. I mean, it is a cool thing, I guess, right? But like, think about how people's image of foster care and orphanage life looks for American kids. When you think of the foster care system in the United States, and I've done a lot of work in the foster care system here, as opposed to like, oh, but we're just gonna get a baby from Korea. It's gonna be so great and wonderful. It's interesting how that's glamorized when it has actually been a lot of trauma. I think our voices have emerged over the last several decades but it still doesn't get the equity in the conversation space. And, you know, some of it, I think, is because adoptees also can be, not always, can be insecure about where they fall in the diaspora, you know, because it's like, well, I'm not Asian enough to really say anything, but you are Asian enough to get harassed, <laughs> you know, or get discriminated against. Or, you know, I've had a lot of microaggressions over the years and even like things that people thought they were being kind to me, like, oh, Michelle, you know why you have such a great work ethic? It's because you're Asian. Oh, wow. And I'm like, but I'm adopted, you know? So, yeah. Also like, why, why would you ever say that to somebody? So I just think that adoptee voices are still emerging, but I don't think it is something that we see a lot of. And I could be very wrong here, but I only know one other Korean adoptee in local news in the country. And I'm sure that they're out there, but I feel like I'm pretty active in searching for people and can't find them. So if you don't even see a Korean adoptee or a transracial adoptee on the news in your local community or in your hometown, where do you think they exist? Or maybe there are a few and they don't talk about it. Yeah, of course. But that's what I mean. Like if you can't even see it in your own community, then you go, well, where are they? Of course, they're in every city, but it's this idea of like, you don't see the representation even on your local news. Adoptees especially came out in real big support. And we used to get a lot of messages from people who would say, I'm only half Korean or I'm only a quarter Japanese. And I never felt like I could stand up maybe because I don't present as an Asian person or because I never felt like I was Asian enough. And the very Asian movement gave me an opportunity to say, I do belong. Gia Vang, who's the other co-founder of the foundation, she said, we're not in the business of doing purity tests. We're not gonna say like, you're only half Asian. You're a full person, right? So I don't like that wording. I love that. And I want to expand this conversation a bit because A, who gets to decide who is Asian enough or anything enough? And we see that gatekeeping happening within diaspora communities as well, within immigrant communities as well, something that isn't talked about as much. But what would you say to people who think that way? I would say that no matter who we are, if we are living in the United States, 
for, I guess you could just use this for any home country, right? But for me, in my experience, if you're living in the United States, you have to be very intentional about how you are incorporating culture into your life. Hmm. That's just the bottom line. Let's say you're a Korean kid, you were born in the United States, your parents are Korean, you celebrate all the Korean traditions. I guarantee when you get on a plane and go to Korea, you do not fit in. Absolutely. <laughs> the Korean people know that you are American. And I think I used to feel so insecure about that because I felt like I was never really Korean enough. But like I would be on TV and people would send me hate mail or people would say like, I can't believe you would have that damn bloody blah on TV. It's so disrespectful to our veterans. I've literally had all kinds of things. I've been spat at, you know, I mean, just like, oh no, you know, terrible things. I mean, it's whatever, it's journalism. So some of that is uh, the intersectionality of titles, you know, whether you're a journalist or whether you're Asian or whatever. But you have like these little moments. Like when I worked in Seattle, the majority minority is Asian. And we had a lot of Asian people in our newsroom. And I remember there was a very serious crime reporter, veteran in our newsroom, and she is Korean descent. And she came up to me one day and I was always intimidated by her because even though she was the nicest, I was like, oh my God, she's a total badass, you know? Like, <laughs> but one day she came up to me and she said, can you speak Korean? And I said, yeah. She said, I need you to translate. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can only say like little things. Um, I, I mean, I, I took it in college, right? But I haven't, I don't use it all the time. But she was like, but you still speak more than I do. Do you think you can help me? Oh, wow. And she was trying to interview someone. And I said, I can try. But then I was like, don't you go to Korea like every other year? And don't you have Korean family? And you know, like it was like, what? And she was like, yeah, but I still don't speak it. So to me, that diffused so much. Like, you don't have to speak Korean to be Korean. Yeah. You know, you don't have to know everything about Korean to be Korean. So I think as these little experiences have happened to me, it just gives me more confidence to be like, I'm just who I am. Like, I'm just who I am. So when you say like, do we represent what does it mean and all those things, I really feel like with the very Asian movement and the things that we can do just because of how we started and how we are led, that I hope that what we do is say, you have the right to bring your full self to the table, no matter what degree of Asian you are, <laughs> mm. you know, and no matter who you were raised by or where you were raised, you have a right to be yourself hmm. and a right to be acknowledged and recognized for yourself. Because I think that will internally give you more confidence and especially with the younger generation so that you can go out in the world and be a better person to other people. Like you have to start within. Absolutely. More than physical attributes, cultural nuances, norms, practices. It's a mindset. Yeah. I see my kids, both of them born and raised here, but they identify as Pakistani Americans. Now they go back once every two years and yet there is so much that they are proud of. But at the same time, as you said, when they go back to Pakistan, my family in Pakistan, my friends, they don't see them as Pakistanis. Yeah. They are viewed as Americans. Unfortunately or fortunately, I think it allows second gen kids, kids like yourself to navigate different cultures, but I can also understand that it can be taxing mentally as well. Yes, 
and hard for the mom too don't you think yeah i mean because you have to step in both worlds just like your kids do and be advocates for your children as well i feel like the onus lies with me have i been able to pass on those traditions to them and have i failed in some way and that's a constant reminder of how can i better their experience in pakistan but at the same time how can i give them values that are valued by my family and my culture <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it is quite alienating for me when i go back and i see my kids not fitting in or feeling left out which is pretty nerve-wracking Michelle I want to circle back to your book and food in general now in eastern cultures whether it's south asian east asian cultures there's a lot of emphasis on food right mm-hmm. and there's a lot of emphasis on sharing food even if you look at our dishes and the way we cook it's in large quantities and it's meant to be shared and i wonder if there is a story behind the focus on food in korean culture gosh you know the thing that i love about korean food is that it is as old as time when we were writing the book it was funny because i would put in these little facts and i would have my sister look at them and she'd be like oh, i didn't know that you know oh um, wow <laughs> because they'd be like oh this is from the joseon dynasty <laughs> like you know so i love the fact that like every dish in korea has an origin story every dish has been born out of something whether it was a dynasty or whether it was out of poverty or the stories about korean fried chicken you know having that origin story of maybe during wartime where americans were in the country you know just all kinds of things and being exposed to other cultures so to me it was really fascinating to actually learn some of that stuff not just like oh this is delicious i love it this is a hot dish in korea i mean to really go oh wait this was in the joseon dynasty or the sejong dynasty wow this is so fascinating even like the korean fried chicken you know learning that the overwhelming story is that it originated during the korean war because americans wanted chicken i always say like don't quote me on everything like there's only so much <laughs> that you can google and find out and search for but just hearing those stories i think are really amazing and then plus so much is centered around food and culture everywhere but i just love that in korean culture if you're eating dinner somewhere you're going to probably go to somebody's house take your shoes off sit around a table on the floor you know and share banchan which is like the side dishes and to me it is such an experience and i miss that cuz we don't do that here at home you know i was going to say that eating food in the us is a lonely sad affair right <laughs> like People, car eating right. like you go through the drive through and you eat yes. in the car <laughs> I mean even in the offices right people will eat alone at their desks the concept of sharing food or sitting together breaking bread is not very common at least i haven't witnessed it in the us as much there's a huge immigrant population but we haven't been able to make a transition into something which is more communal in nature yeah i was thinking what you were saying like it would be so nice to sit around a big table and share side dishes i mean we don't really do that i was like what's the american version of that like you would see people at happy hour thanksgiving Yeah, true. Thanksgiving like potlucks. You see potlucks a lot, but it's a special occasion. Right. You know, I was thinking you might go out to eat and share appetizers, but that's not the same as like, you know, what we're talking about. Wouldn't it be kind of fun like if we made an effort to change that and to make it an experience in the workplace? That would be cool. 
It would be, absolutely. Michelle, something else that I want to talk about. Now, we've seen this in recent years, explosion in popularity of Korean culture. Right. It's permeated every <laughs> facet of American society from Korean food, dramas, music, K-pop. Well, you do need permission to dance here. BTS was at the UN General Assembly to deliver a powerful address to today's youth and to present a pretty cool music video in the General Assembly Hall. K-beauty, which is fantastic, you know, Korean culture being celebrated and enjoyed. But among other things, what Americans are really good at is cultural appropriation. And when I think about how Korean culture has become such a huge part of American mainstream lexicon, I'm also concerned that Korean culture is vulnerable to losing authenticity. Mm -hmm. Do you think it matters? I want you to talk me through the kind of impact it would have. And in addition, I also feel that nuance is lost somehow through this whole process because we see so much hate and resentment towards Asian community and sometimes mass consumption or commodification of culture makes it normal to digest or to be okay with the hate that comes along. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, in terms of cultural appropriation, it is really tricky because sometimes you don't even realize that something has been culturally appropriated. You know, when you're consuming it and you're like, wait a minute, I have to stop and think about this for a second. The one thing that I do love about, for instance, K-pop, is that it hasn't changed, at least in my view of like, you know, in the sense that we're still hearing Korean language. And like my kid listens to kids pop and these kids are singing Korean language. And I'm thinking like, well, are these kids Korean who are singing on this kids pop soundtrack? Or is this actually just like kids learning Korean? So I think at least we still have language. I mean, I think that's great, right? Yeah. K-beauty. I have a love and hate relationship with Korean beauties anyway, um, because <laughs> I think Korean beauty standards, if you're looking at Korea, the country are really unsustainable, unattainable, unrealistic, and damaging. <laughs> you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I still want to use the serums and, <laughs> you know, I still want to use the lotions. I still want to have that. What is it called? Gloss oh, yeah, in? I yeah, really right. do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I want to use all the product. But every time I go to Korea or, you know, when you have a conversation with a Korean woman, you know, who's like, I say Korean, Korean, it's always kind of like, oh, your skin's too dark. You would be so pretty if you got your nose done or you really need to get your eyes done. Or maybe if we just shaved off your jawline, <laughs> you know, and you're wow. like, I don't want to do all that you know and i think if you've ever looked at korean beauty queens there was one meme a few years ago it was like 50 women who looked literally like the same person because they'd all <laughs> had the same plastic surgery oh wow. <laughs> so rumors about plastic surgery are true then oh yeah yeah i mean the one thing is like if i wanted to get plastic surgery i would actually go to korea to do it because <laughs> i feel like they've got it down 
But at this point in my life, I don't want plastic surgery. So, you know, in terms of like Korean beauty standards, I go now like to TJ Maxx or Target and you see all the stuff that people were using in Korea and still using like the masks and things like that. You see that now changed over, but they're not Korean products or they're very Americanized. So yeah, I have, you know, some thoughts about that. I guess because, you know, when you've been under indexed as a group for so long, to be over indexed is exciting. And at the same time, like, I think maybe this is my brain being just like so grateful that people can look at Korean culture and go, oh, that's so neat. Or, oh, I really like, you know, this group or, oh, I really like these face masks or something like that. Then it makes me feel proud in many ways. But then I'm like, Yes, you do need to take a step back and go, wait, was this appropriation? I need to know. <laughs> right. You know, so it's hard for me because sometimes I just look at it surface level because I see like my nieces and my nephews who are white children, you know, living in America, dancing to K-pop. Then it's like, well, how can you judge that? But how do we empower people to be more mindful of the hate or the vitriol that's targeted at Asian community and to be aware of that yeah. because on the one hand yes commodification and even consumption of Korean culture commodification is bad consumption not bad mm -hmm. right but then to connect the dots and make those linkages and say well if you like the products you should also love and respect the people the people yes. right yeah what are we missing you know, that's a really good question. I really think that we are missing out on conversations happening in the communities people live. Like, you know, when we look at BTS, we think Korea. When we think of the big Asian organizations or like media or movies, we think of Los Angeles or we might think of New York. Hmm. But the Asian American Journalists Association did a survey and they looked at the top 20 news markets, which I could name the top 20, but it's like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, Dallas, Houston. You know, you start getting into these bigger cities. The usual suspect. Yeah. But if you look at the top 20 markets in broadcast news, Asian Americans were grossly underrepresented in terms of the population and newsrooms matching the population numbers. So what that tells me is that Kids growing up in, say, Philadelphia, Atlanta, St. Louis, Kansas City, Denver, they're not seeing the representation in their own backyards. So that means that lawmakers, like city lawmakers, who then maybe become state lawmakers, they're not hearing the stories that are happening to the Asian American communities in their own backyards. So they might not even realize what the situation and challenges are. They might not be solving issues with language access or health disparities because they don't even know that people exist in their own cities. I mean, that's a very big generalization. But what I'm saying is when you can say we are grossly underrepresented, where half of the nation's population, AAPI population is, then what does that tell you? That tells you that we're not making enough changes culturally within our country because we're very focused on the coasts hmm. and we're not really focusing in on making this narrative change that needs to happen because people don't think that we really exist. Because I think of just like, when you really want to make change, you've got to start with your own grassroots effort in your own city. And then maybe you can take it to the state, like New Jersey, for example, Illinois, you know, making Asian American history mandatory curriculum in their states. Now, I'm not saying that those are perfect answers or the only solution, but like when you're talking about education, 
influencing the minds of young people so they grow up and be healthy adults, right? I'm not saying the curriculum is perfect or anything like that. I think there's a lot of effort, you know, trying to make that. We could have another conversation about <laughs> curriculum. Yeah. <laughs> and who's teaching it? Yeah, exactly. But it's this idea of making Asian American history, American history. You know, there are a lot of people who've been left out of conversations. When I moved to St. Louis, there was an incident where two lawmakers, two city lawmakers kind of got into it a little bit. There is one Asian American city alderman and another alderman said to him, this is just paraphrasing, but something like, I know you're new here, but St. Louis is a black and white town. Oh, wow. That was said like in an open meeting. And the school district that I live in in St. Louis is 17% Asian American, which is larger than the district I lived in when I was in Seattle. In St. Louis, we had a Chinatown that started in like the 1860s and lasted almost to 1960. So it was here for almost a hundred years. People called it Hop Alley. There were grocers and launders and tea shops and merchants. A hundred years in downtown St. Louis, it was blighted and destroyed for the first Bush Stadium. And if you ask people, hey, what's Hop Alley? Do you know what Hop Alley is? No one can say yes. I mean, very few people know what it is. Michelle, I wonder if that is deliberate ignorance or the dominance that they've had for centuries. Well, in St. Louis, I think it's as simple as people not having a seat at the table. If we have just elected our first Asian American alderman within the last few years in St. Louis, maybe no one was watching out for the community. You know, maybe no one was keeping record. I mean, there has been an erasure of something that existed for a century. I mean, that is a really big, like, what? You know, I don't think that any of these things are intentional. I think a lot of these things are done for progress and moving forward and all those things, but it always comes to the expense of someone. Who, you know? And I never want to downplay the fact that like St. Louis has a lot of work that it is doing and a lot of reckoning that it is doing between other communities. I mean, the black community, the racial tensions, the things that have been happening in St. Louis is really important. And so I don't want to ever be like, don't just say St. Louis is a black and white city because we've got Asian folks too. But I do think there's room for everyone, you know, and we all rise together. And definitely like the Asian American community benefits off of the work that the black community has done. I love St. Louis because I do feel like, especially when you're in the city, there's so much solidarity happening and people really want to work together. And I do love that. But we also need to stand up for each other to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've erased history here and we need to correct this. But that all stems from education. People need to, first of all, understand the education. Then people need to understand, we need to share the education. If it hasn't ever been shared on the news, where are people learning about it, right? So I do think that local news has a big role. And I'm not just saying it because I work in local news, but it's really this idea of few people have had a seat at the table for a long time in many spaces. So of course, things would get erased. Now let's correct and change that. And Coalition building is important, right? Yes, so absolutely. Different communities, brown and black communities coming together, diverse communities coming together, which also doesn't happen as often, whether it's immigrant communities, people of color, everybody is living in their own silo, in their own bubbles. And I don't see as much unification on issues of race and identity and discrimination. And I can understand most marginalized communities are trying to protect themselves rather sure. protect others. But at the same time, it's extremely important to have that kind of coalition building in order to understand each other better as well. Yeah. Because there is a tension between different communities of color. We cannot ignore that part of the history either. 
right? Right, exactly. I want to pivot a little <laughs> and I want to talk again about food because <laughs> I grew up in Pakistan and food was and is such an integral part of getting together, hanging out, spending time with family. I wonder what is your absolute favorite dish <laughs> that you oh. mention in the book and another mm. that you don't mention in the book. Oh my gosh, you're making me choose my babies. <laughs> Picking out my favorite child. There were so many things that we cut from the book and now I'm like trying to remember what we cut because I was like, maybe we should mention this. You know what? It's funny. My favorite thing that we did not mention is just a banchan. It's just a side dish. It's the cucumber kimchi. It's like my favorite thing of all time. And it's literally just cucumbers, like gochugaru, some vinegar, some sugar. But it's like, I can never get enough. Like if I make a batch, it's gone within a couple of hours. And that's not even like a real food food. You know, that's not like an entree kind of thing. But that's like my favorite thing. And also, I really love beans, boiling some beans and then putting more gochugaru on it and like sugar and stuff. Um, that's one of my favorite things. Do you cook? I do cook. I used to say that I'm a really good home cook. Huh. Now I say with a busy job and a three-year-old and a foundation, I just do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if Korean food is the kind of food that needs to be cooked and consumed every day versus, you know, being refrigerated or frozen. Oh, no. Like if you do any kind of kimchi or mm. like many of the banchan, the side dishes. Other than kimchi, like main course. I don't think so. When we would make beef or something, right? Or like pork even, you know, you make a big batch or you let it marinate in the refrigerator for days, you know, so you don't need to cook every day. You don't need to prepare things every day. But like, you know, even being around someone who's making kimchi, like big batches of kimchi, you see all the people getting together and making like these huge bats of it and stuff. I have never done that. I have witnessed it. But I think that's the nice and wonderful thing about Korean food. There's so much work and love and TLC that goes into it because there are like a bajillion steps for some of the foods. And sometimes that's when I'm like this. Nope, I'm just going to go to the store. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to find, you know, like a kimchi place that I really like or a market that makes good kimchi because sometimes depending on what kind of kimchi you want or whatever food sometimes I'm like man there's just too much but for the most part if we're just making like beef or something like bulgogi or something or kaibi it's pretty easy to do it's interesting you say that because even in Pakistani culture a lot of love time and effort goes into cooking yeah which can be frustrating because <laughs> in the U.S. there's so much else that you do on your own and I wonder if that's a function of the way society operates in East Asian cultures or Asian cultures in general, because the process is time consuming, right? Yeah. And I don't know if it has anything to do with previously women used to stay home more or a function of something like that, right? Because as you said, I don't have time to spend two hours cooking every day, but our food somehow warrants that yeah. attention, right? <laughs> right, right? I mean, can you imagine you're making Thanksgiving dinner every day? <laughs> you know, that's what it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everyone needs basically like a Korean or a Pakistani grandma, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah. have like a generational housing so that you can actually live and have good food. But that's the thing to me, like so many nights where I'm literally having a bagged salad 
just because I think work culture is a real issue in the United States. You know, we're all working and then taking our kids to a million places and then trying to do things that we love as well. And it's almost unsustainable and impossible. I was listening to something that Shonda Rhimes said during a commencement speech. And she was like, you know, people always say, Shonda, how do you do it? And she was like, if you want me to tell you the truth, I don't. If I'm here giving a speech, that means I'm missing my kid's first swim lesson. Or if I'm doing bath time with my child, that means that I'm missing a rewrite that I needed to do. And it spoke to me so much. And I think we need to normalize those conversations because yes, we are all sort of drowning. We can barely get dinner on the table and we are all working. And we can't lean into everything. Right, yes, we can. <laughs> I'm like, I can barely, yeah, I can like, dip my toe in. <laughs> That's it. You know, I was, I joke because obviously the truth is like at the heart of what I do for a living. Like as a journalist, you know, we're always seeking the truth. And then I'm like, there's also this element of truth where I feel like I'm lying to everybody at the same time my producer might be like where are we with that story oh we're almost done with that story <laughs> you know and then I'm like ah oh, such a lie because I haven't even logged the interview so I feel like yes we are truth seekers but I am also a professional liar <laughs> <laughs> I love it so in the end Michelle if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase how would you do that ah <laughs> Man, see, that's tough because I'm thinking of all the political things that are going on in the world right now. The word that's like coming to the top of my mind is unapologetic. In a good or a bad way? Both. Hmm. Both. I like that. I don't know why that just, you know, came to the top of my brain because sometimes Americans' unapologeticness is embarrassing, <laughs> you know, where you're like, <laughs> wow, okay, we're just going there. But then also it is inspiring, like, you know, in many ways where it's like, we get to determine what our culture is and we get to determine what we believe are core values for us. And I also like that too. So I don't know if unapologetic is the right word, but that's the one that is coming to my mind at the moment. And that is kind of how I am feeling myself. Huh. Like I'm feeling unapologetic about just being me. And I think seeing other people react to the very Asian hashtag. And now with this foundation that we have, the very Asian foundation, it just feels like I am what I am and I will evolve and I will devolve. Right. <laughs> I will have ups and downs, but I am what I am, whether I'm very Asian or very Asian. <laughs> I'm just going to be unapologetically me. I love it. Is there a place you want people to buy this book from? Any particular favorite bookstore? Oh, yes. Well, I would love it if people would go to Glue Books. That's G-L-O-O. And that is where the book will be found for the most part. And then I think that there will be some boutique places that it will be sold. But yeah, Glue Books is the jam. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. I am so grateful to Michelle for this fun, interesting, introspective, unapologetic, important conversation. Yes, there were questions that I was hesitant to ask, but I still did. And Michelle answered them with grace. I am so thankful to her for that. It's also important to have conversations around identity, what it means to accept somebody wholly and not try to filter through different parts of their identity. And I hope to have a lot more conversations like these 
But to be honest, I can't. If you guys, our listeners, our wonderful, valuable listeners don't support us, consider subscribing to our Patreon. Consider writing a nice review for us. Consider making a small contribution to Immigrantly. It goes a long way in sustaining the podcast. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Zia Jafri, edited by Manny Simone. Until next time, take care. Thank you.